0: In 1984, Joe Dever released the first of the Lone Wolf game books, introducing readers to the Kai Lords and the world of Magnamon in which you were the hero. Now, 40 years later, those books are coming back and we're here to talk about them. It's the Journeys through Magnamon podcast. Hello and welcome back to Journeys Through Magnumon, the official Lone Wolf podcast with myself, Jonathan, sometimes known as Zip on the community. And I'm August Hahn. And today we are going to be talking about the Cauldron of Fear. Dun, dun, dun. Which is... <laughs> that's right. And I'm really happy to have made it here. Uh, in a sense, we've broken a Jonathan curse. And that curse is that in many attempts, I've tried to run through the books with another person, uh, either by just reading the books with them or running it as an RPG series uh, or even live streaming it. We've never made it further than Jungle of Horrors. For some reason, Jungle of Horrors is always the series that that ends my my run. And and this is kind of (laughs) ironic uh, because that was the the latest book I had for many years, or or at least there was a gap. I I had the GM series, the Grandmaster series, Uh but that was where the Magna Kai series ended for me. Pretty much in my childhood. I never read these later books until I was an adult. So
1: you never got past book eight with another person. So you're, you're saying I should watch my
0: back. That's what I'm saying. Well, we, well, I don't know if this episode never, if this episode, if you're listening to this episode, we made it, (laughs) then it's okay.
1: (laughs) We're wearing our psychic ring and we're using our medallion of the crystal star. That's right.
0: And if the world ends before that, it's our fault.
1: Right. Yeah. Sorry, guys.
0: Yeah, I mean, there won't be any of you here to hear my sorry, but I'm I'm, I'm super sorry. But you know, it's interesting, August, because I have I've brought this up kind of jokingly to other fans of the series, and I've actually heard this before. Some people have said that that uh that book eight and and book nine, the transition between them is where they started to experience a a, a like a a lock. They had to wait. For a while, or put the series on pause, and I, I wondered if if that correlates to maybe a change up in how the narrative is presented. You know, things get kind of darker and less mission. Uh, I would, I
1: would absolutely say that's accurate, uh, especially when you consider the the average age of the reader who's first experiencing these books when they were first being published. You're talking about a serious dynamic shift.
0: Yeah, and and the world gets bigger too. Like the lore gets deeper. It begins to actually Absolutely. build. I think for the first time on prior books. Like before this, they really do feel pretty standalone. I mean, you can note connections. There's reoccurring characters if you've met them, but it does feel like you can pick up a book and play it. And then here right. it starts to feel like, oh, I kind of need to know a little bit of the history.
1: I think that there's almost like a rolling juggernaut of lore that that it starts slow, right? But by the time you get to book eight, there's so much behind it that if you try to step into the series at book nine, especially since book nine is also effectively the eruption of war. And that that's pretty heavy stakes. And if you try to couple that with not knowing the story beforehand, yeah, I, I can see how it would be a really heavy lift.
0: At the same time, that's not a criticism of Book Nine. I actually find that it's one of my favorite books in the Magna series. It is. Series. Mine too.
1: Yours as well. Mine too. What, what do you love about it? I love it because it is the first time that you really get, at least, I don't know about experience per se, but you start to learn about Nag and the war, and you really start to see the machinations of a true Dark Lord. Right. Uh, not to mention that the stakes the stakes just explode. You're no longer just the last of the Kai searching for magic rocks. You're now trying to search for magic rocks in the middle of basically world war everything.
0: I really like what she said there because you're right. Now that you've said that, I'm thinking on the series as a whole and really Dark Lord Nag probably represents the most Political machinations that go on right before this, you're really just threatened by big bruisers. like Zagarner just rolls in with an army. Hakon is so arrogant. he's just I'm just going to crush things personally. And nag, you really start to feel that you're outclassed
1: right, right. And of course, later on, you you also begin to realize that that Hakon was was actually a brilliant general as well who is completely set up by Nag to take the fall. But yeah, Nag, Nag is even more devious than you think when
0: you start this out. And I'll say for my for my part, uh, I, I like the book for a different reason, which is that it's probably the first time I remember really feeling like I was getting to role play, uh, that the choices that were being offered to me were of a more role-playing nature than than a left path, right path nature. Uh, there's there's these encounters with with people like soldiers where you actually determine how you react to them. Do I tell them the truth of my mission? you know, which they usually don't believe you, <laughs> you know, do I, do <laughs> well, I lie? Yeah. Do I try to show them proof of my mission? And actually it generally leads to these different pathways and and we'll get to this, but of course, a big midsection of this book is this political encounter. And while you don't get to really maybe role play it, it, it does make you feel like you're dealing with more character moments than dungeon crawl moments
1: there are a number of encounters in this book especially like the one you're talking about and we'll get to that one where you start to realize that the world is so much bigger than just a dungeon crawl and that you may have the the thermonuclear macguffin
0: on your back And
1: it's not going to help you at
0: all, right at all, which is great. I love that. I love that, that switch up uh, on, on us as readers. Yes. Yeah.
1: Now that was, uh, I really do think that this book has some of Joe's finest moments.
2: The shadow of war sweeps across the continent of Magnament as your mortal enemies, the dark lords of Helgadad, redouble their efforts to defeat your Magnakai quest. You dare not delay. Already their armored legions are converging on a city beneath whose streets lie hidden the object of your quest, the Lawstone of Tahau.
0: All right. So before we before we jump really deep into the plot of Cauldron, let's uh, just do a check in on the war, the continued war effort. So what's going on right now with the current war movements?
1: Okay, well, in the book, it's the it's the year MS 5061. Uh, The war started in the last few months of MS 5060. Uh, several isolated attacks, they seem unrelated, they all occur uh, around the same time and around the same place. Uh, so-called renegade Dracarim that are in the Darklands and in Ogia uh, invade respectively the nations of Eru and Telestria. Then they attack f- for the first time with several armies and different targets. It's it's really the first time in many years that the Dracarim have gone on the warpath, and it seems like they're just scattered. They gather their forces and then they invade the barony of Ruanan in Summerland. The biggest army coming from Nadgazad, uh, and, force- and they were gathering their forces from several fortress cities around that area, and they attacked the Stornlands in mass. Unsurprisingly, they didn't have to fight Magador because that kingdom had already allied itself uh, with the Dark Lords for centuries. So that allowed them to basically bypass Magador. And then conquer Lyrus and Deldon, uh, practically without firing a crossbow bolt.
0: So let me see if I understand this right. You're saying that the the Dracarum have always attacked kind of one place at a time in disjointed efforts before. Well, no,
1: I, I wouldn't say always, but in recent memory, remember, we in this area, especially through this section of history, we're talking about the span of centuries.
0: Okay. So... In at least to this current generation, it's basically been raiding. So essentially, the Dracrum have not been seen as a real threat for a long time. And then suddenly, uh, they launch a a multi-pronged attack with very clear uh, overarching direction.
1: Right, right. Now, all of the nations around the Darklands, especially, basically, all the nations in northern Magnumund, Um They've always considered the, the Dracorim to be, you know, boogeymen. They're they're scary when they raid. They're terrifying. You know, you can't help but being afraid when when hordes of black armored warriors, as skilled as your best soldiers, come across, hit a village, maybe maybe burn down some farmland.
0: Sure, sure, but, but then they go
1: away. <laughs> right. They right. They 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 don't attack en masse in recent memory. And then try to take and hold land. So this is an
0: invasion, and that's different,
1: right? Right. And for many of the nations around them, they just don't know how to cope.
0: Now you said that the Dark Lords, the well, the the Dark Lands, uh, a, a, which is the Dark Lords, the Dracorum, all working together, they take Ruinon, which we've been to. This was up in Book Four, the the focus of really that that adventure, and. My, right, that's the whole plot line of Chasm of Doom. And my question with that is: so, how does this compare to Zagarna's attempted conquest it, from the Summerland perspective? Because that's a Summerlanding a Summerlending, uh, city.
1: Okay, so Zagarna is basically the blunt instrument, right? Archlord Zagarna, he gathered up another black muster, he hit en masse, and that fit with the psychology. That most people, especially the sum lending, have for the darklands, which makes sense too. They, I mean, Zagarna it, was like a twenty-five foot tall Godzilla. <laughs> he he was effectively this gigantic, semi-reptilian monster beast with a mouth in his tummy. Yeah, he he was a visible monster brute. Yeah, it it so that that fit right. That's what they were expecting. Okay, so then th- so this this catches them off guard basically. Oh, certainly. Certainly. And of course, a great deal of the success has to go to the Dark Lord who planned it all. Nag.
0: How long can Summerlin resist? How long before Lone Wolf comes back to a, a, a crater in the ground? Okay, well,
1: Book 12 answers that. They resist eight years. Wow, that's actually pretty good. It is, actually, considering the that there's no longer a Kai Monastery to lean back on, the fact that they lose a number of troops in the initial assaults, the fact that they resist eight years. I mean, there's some lending. It's what they do.
2: Shielding his eyes from the sun, Bannadan surveys the horizon. After a few minutes, he shakes his head. To get a better view, we need to reach higher ground but as there's no trees or hills in sight, I'll have to improvise. And with that, he whispers the runes of a Brotherhood spell. Slowly, he rises from the saddle until he's hovering in the air over 20 feet above your head.
0: This book, you get to be joined by a a companion, uh, and that is our our fan favorite, uh, ba- Banadun.
1: Banadun, yep. Who is roughly the exact same age, so he's 26 years old at this point. He was also 15 when they
0: met. And I was trying to figure out some of the lore here, some of our Bannadin history, our Bannadin biography. Uh, how, how long ago was Bannadin in Tahoe? Well, he had actually traveled there
1: uh, through most of the countries bordering the Tantareas. And that was before he became a journey master, which is what he is in the book in this book. What was his title at that time? A- at that time, he was a journeyman, yes, got it. and then okay. he becomes a journey he became a journey master uh after he masters all ten of the basic brotherhood spells. that mastery be- turn
0: takes a journeyman mage and makes them a journey master now see that that makes me. That's really interesting to me because one thing I, I haven't ever gotten a sense of is, you know, are the Brotherhood – it sounds like they don't just stay in Torin, but they kind of travel the world helping people out.
1: Right. The Brotherhood of the Crystal Star actually encourages their magicians to travel. Uh, they encourage them to travel, but they often fund their expeditions, or arrange for them to, to travel with trade caravans or ambassadors, because they want them to broaden their knowledge and understanding of magic. Uh, the Brotherhood understands that many of the nations in Magnumund practice other kinds of magic, and they believe that
0: that knowledge can only
1: strengthen their own.
0: We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Banadin. I know some people will be sad <laughs> we didn't go deep into him in in uh, Shadows on the Sand. So, right. we're gonna we're gonna ask some key questions now that people have have wondered about. One of those is, what are Banadin's key spells right now? This is like I'm looking at his Tinder profile and I'm I'm wondering, you know, what's his what's his top selling points? He doesn't
1: really have a specialty spell at this point because he is one of the few magicians of his generation to have actually mastered all of the of the advanced Brotherhood spells for for his ability. He has not mastered the second level spells, but those first ten. The ones, the the ones that they always have to learn before they become journey masters. He's one of the few Brotherhood mages that has mastered all ten of those. Okay, so that goes and on his resume, all. right? Right, and, and he is effectively he's almost like a specialist in all ten.
0: Does he have like a a, a signature one? You know, if he was in the the Lone Wolf. Uh, World Wolf Capcom fighting game. I I understand that everybody wants to know what his ultimate is. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: right. But, which is fatality, <laughs> right? But but no matter what, I, I I can't tell you what happens when he spams F one. I'm sorry. I, I I he he's just he's good enough and he's mentally flexible enough that he always has a mastered spell for whatever situation he's in.
0: Okay, got so it.
1: He, he doesn't really have a finishing move, though it is notable that he is extremely good at trying to gather ener- uh, information and mastery over new kinds of magic, such to the point that that he can actually work with some power words.
0: Well, and as long as we're on the topic of magic, th- this transitions sure. well into a lot of the things you encounter, because this first part of the book really takes you across the countryside. Uh, we know that Joe loves his travel logs, and this is no he exception. Does. You spend the first piece really traveling to get to your destination. And along the way, you encounter um different kind of these these touches of magic. And I had a few questions about these. I want to let's start with uh, Chaban, who is the the Brotherhood Mage who taught Banadin while he was in um Tahao. And right. My question about him is, so he's a brother of the Crystal Star. Am I right in that? Uh, no, he actually is not. Okay. His
1: order is closely aligned with the Brotherhood. Uh, he is a member of the Tahoe's Magician's Guild. Okay. Who, over over many years, they've traded knowledge with the Taurenese. Uh, But they they even share many of the same spells, and even
0: the symbols on their robes are very similar. And is he kind of like... Is he sort of a, a, a an example of your standard wizard in Magnum? And I kind of asked this because he's got that like Merlin from Sword in the Stone kind of feel. Like he's a little goofy in a good sort of absent-minded wizardly way. Uh, and I just wasn't sure if that's like a Chabon thing or if this is kind of the, you know, the general feel you get from wizards, good wizards in Magnum. <sighs> it is safe to say that
1: that many of the of the traits and uh and aura around chiban is is very chibani um he is not your typical wizard either into how or or elsewhere uh, but he is incredibly prominent in the city he's a counselor he's a scholar uh he's a magician of of excellent repute uh, when he when he asks for an audience with, with any given senator, king, ambassador, he's pretty much always heard.
0: So yeah, comparing him to Merlin is a very good, very good analogy. Well, and I, I thought he was Brotherhood, so I was going to ask this, but you know, it, it still is a, it, it doesn't matter for him anymore, but I think it, it matters for Bannadin. People will still want to know this. When you are a brother of the Crystal Star, like Bannadin is- do you have to be Summerland born? Is there an admission process to get into the colleges? Do do we know how Banneting got in?
1: Well, all right. Uh, there there is actually a a relatively well worded explanation for this, so I'm just going to read it word for word. Um, there are many places in Magnamund where the arcane science of magic was studied in its codified form before the coming of the Sumlending. Spells and ancient formulae were devised by gifted human mages, uh, i.e. People who received elder magi blood into their lineages centuries before any of this occurred, uh, and they did this in an attempt to contain and impose certain a certain semblance of order on the chaos of primal and right-handed magic. The elders of the magicians' guilds of Magnamund, which does isn't just Tauren, it, it it's places like where Chiban is from, the north and south and southern Magnamund. But they invented special power words that summoned and released magical energy with a reliable and reproducible effect. These became known as spells, and they were the fundamental basis of power. This was the rise of the new magic, or left-handed magic. Uh, however, until the coming of the Sumlending in MS 3434, the knowledge uh, possessed by the magicians of Magnamund was rudimentary at best, and the range, the range of their spells was limited. So, magic... And and even the study of magic that predates the sum lending, but the coming of the sum lending helped codify it and make it what people in Magnumund would consider it today. A straight answer to your question would be this: You don't have to have sum lending blood to be a brotherhood, to be in the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star. Anybody with the gift of magic can learn their power words and become and become a member of the guild. Not everyone is accepted, however. You still have to at least be an
0: ally of Summerland. Got it. And so I I guess the admission process is really almost like a test for your magical aptitude.
1: Uh, Magical aptitude and political leanings. Because they they understand that they're handing you the keys to magic. And uh, if if, if recent history has shown anything, you need to be real careful who you give that trust to. (laughs) All right. I want to get to some stuff that's more book specific. Sure, sure. But that, w- that was definitely a useful diversion. And I think that a lot of a lot of fans and readers have been wanting to know some of those things.
0: Uh, and that takes me right into the next stuff because some of these questions that I've got here are ex- uh, taken from fans. One is, this is very esoteric, but Chabon, he summons food at one point. And this comes up with a lot of worlds, a lot of magic systems, Uh No matter how fantastical the magic systems get, people always want to know, can this magic system actually create food, or is it summoning it from somewhere else? Do we know? Do we know in in Magnumund?
1: Okay. So, it it is shown in the lore that magic can create new matter, uh, transforming it from energy. Uh, However... Theoretically, while they well, it could create food, but food is incredibly complex, very difficult to make, uh, in anything more than mm, delicious gruel. <laughs>
2: <I> uh, <suck. laughs> the
1: feast that that Shaban summons is so sophisticated that it it's pretty much guaranteed that he summoned it.
0: Got it. Okay, because it yeah, right. So it didn't appear in front of them as, ah, my magic oatmeal. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Mm, Mmm, Malto Mages. (laughs) Yummy. (laughs) Malto Mages. Oh, oh.
1: So, uh, yeah, so it, it was pretty much guaranteed. While it's never specifically stated, even in Joe's notes, it's it is perfectly reasonable to assume that he summoned it from elsewhere.
0: All right, our next question then, and this comes from a a, a fan that I've known for many years on the forums, and he's got the most Arthurian-sounding name. (laughs) Uh, A little bit. And this is Richard Penwarden, and he asks a question that uh, really digs into some of our esoteric legend mythology, and this is legend or truth? These standing stones, there's these stones that are mentioned uh, where it's said that the Vasagonian army was turned to stone by, I believe, the gods when they came to attack the, the these areas. And I, and he had to know, and I'm curious too, story, is it fact or fiction? <laughs>
1: All right, again, there's no specific answer. It's not quantifiably noted in in Joe's pages or in the background whether it's true or not. But um I and and uh, Vincent and Ben we're inclined to say yes. Uh Gnar has been able to open the great chasms after all and a from time to time has broken the truce of the gods, you know, the one she she worked herself <laughs> to act openly. Always at great cost, but she has done it. And uh, she did that to show the the Black Saxon that he was not the the ultimate power in the world. Uh, at that time no human army, not even Summerland could have resisted
0: the the Vasagonian forces. God, oh, I see. So you're just drawing on the fact that there must have been divine intervention or some other factor we don't know about a disease as, or something as
1: much as much as occurred as much as 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 happened there and with as much magic as would have been necessary to turn you know that many
0: and that much uh, yeah it was pretty much guaranteed to be divine intervention you know that is interesting on another level too because in in the books As we're reading them, the part of history that we are living through as Lone Wolf, you realize that you don't see uh, the divine intervention really much through the books, except until you realize that you are supposed to be now that divine intervention. Because once again, here we are in a timeline facing essentially undefeatable threats, except for you.
1: There is no, there is no greater or or more or heavier moment of deus a e machina when you realize that you're the machina.
0: Right? Yes. Yes. Well put.
2: how an ancient stronghold containing a vast city, is a formidable and wondrous sight in the moonlight the imposing walls and towers of red stone and gray rock assume the softening sheen of velvet and the city is often referred to as the velvet fortress.
0: All right, let's jump into the the primary location. This is to the How, which you've been journeying across the wilderness to get to. And I want to start with a question. This is from another fan, Melvin Ma, who posted this on Facebook and said that this book may be his favorite of the Magna Kai series. Pretty
1: much agreed. Pretty
0: much agreed, Melvin. And he asked a great question. Is there a country or city that is the real world influence for the Inari country and the city of Tahau?
1: Probably not. Uh, it is, however, an extension. Uh, it is a Vasa nation. The the same ancient people who founded Vasagonia, Kakush, Cloasia, Cassiorn. And so it's it's an extension of that greater concept, the Vasa. Uh, However, as far as a real world influence, probably not.
0: And I remember you saying last episode, Joe was well-traveled. So I I could see that he might have pulled from his travels to, you know, sort of put together this city. Right, right. It it's probably an assembled concept rather than any specific place. Now that said, it is one of the only places in the books that I remember seeing a sort of democracy. You have these rulership of Ta, uh, tahao which is structured with a a president and an assembly. It it it, it feels maybe a little bit more prime ministry than American presidency, but I mean, they do call them the president of Tahoe, And there's a Senate, and there's you know, there's this structure. I mean, are there are there elections?
1: Ah, uh, yes, there are. It's basically a senatorial republic, and it is led by a president, as you mentioned. But in their history, it's changed several times as far as suffrage is concerned, from equal suffrage to census suffrage. Uh, which is the current situation in, in the book itself, which is why uh, ruthless people like uh, Senator Senator Chil was able
0: to keep their power. Section one forty two in the book mentions these floggings and executions are this regular occurrence, and you know you also get this these senses later on in the book where there's this corruption in the city guard, but they're really harsh in their punishments. So I I was wondering is this is this uh, Senate a very harsh, are they harsh rulers? Like, or or where where does this practice originate? Is it just recent because of the war?
1: Uh, No, actually, it predates the war. Uh, Yes, the rulers are incredibly harsh, mostly because they've been pushed to be. Uh, Not only is there a huge thieves' guild with a lot of political power in Tahoe, but you also have ruthless senators like Chil, through them they've enacted very harsh rules some to try to control the crime and some to make the crime easier for them to benefit from
0: and is this kind of unusual for the rest of magnamund i mean we never really get a look at Home Guard or Duriner's justice system so i wasn't sure is this kind of is this considered harsh by other people or is it just the times oh oh yeah
1: it, it's still considered definitely harsh i mean after all you can through the book, you can see Lone Wolf's reaction to it, and and you can see it, considering his viewpoint of it is harsh. You can expect that it must be harsh from a sum lending standpoint.
0: Now we got to spend some time talking about Gwynion, because this was a, a surprise to me. I've never, for how whatever reason, I've never ended up finding Gwynion in this book. Um, but there he is. <laughs> Yeah, and he's kind of in a position. He's like a judge.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes, he's the sole survivor of his order, and you know he's he's from this area. He these books are filled with secret lore, and that's just one of those little touches. It's like, boom! By the way, Gwinnian. Well, and I bring him up at this moment
0: because I was curious. How is he? I mean, Gwinnian. If people don't remember him, Gwynion is the sage. You first meet him in book four as kind of this prophet. Then you really get right. to meet him in book six as the uh, one of the primary figures of the sages of Lyris in Veretta, and he helps you right. on your quest for the Lore Stone. And then yep. here he is now, but he's always been this figure of justice and good. So I was curious, how is he reacting? To the harshness
1: of to how. Well, one of the reasons that he's here, and one of the ways that he's reacting to it, is that he is fighting it. He's he's trying hard in his position, and it's the reason he's kept his position, uh, is that he's trying to make justice change into how. Uh, despite all the harsh laws that have been voted in, he's always fought injustice and tyranny in the Stormlands. He's always tried to establish and maintain democracies so he wants to help anari remain a republic so he's here to cure its justice and the the rulers know who he is and what he's doing they're just all basically terrified of him
0: yeah you know let's talk a bit more about guinean sure. cuz y- you know you say they're terrified of him he clearly has this personal power. Let's, let's just go through some quick questions about him. I, I know fans have had these questions too. So this, this is for you guys as well. Sure. Absolutely. How old is Gwynian? Uh, he's certainly older than sixty at this point. Okay, <laughs> somewhere between sixty and seven thousand years old. <laughs> <laughs> he,
1: well, more to so the point, he's somewhere between sixty and seventy. Uh, so, okay. I, if you had to, if you had to p- post a year on it, I'd say he's sixty-five. Well, and and he ends up being in the books for quite a while. So a long while. But this, he wouldn't be the first example of magic creating longevity. So
0: right, right. Uh, okay, well, then then how far along is he right now, at this point, in his magical power and wisdom? Oh, he's at his peak. He is at his peak oh, in this okay. book. Uh, but it's important to know that, again, it's not a peak
1: that really tapers off at any point. Okay, so God, He's it. already incredibly powerful, to the point where even people like Senator Cheele do not dare move against him. Because whether he would or could... Those who do not appreciate what he's doing, they at least believe that he could whisper a word
0: and they explode into blood and bunnies. <laughs> uh, blood and bunnies was the is the magnum uh, punk band that's really happening right now. Blood and bunnies people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're touring home guard. I, I, I personally
1: actually caught them in Anscaven. It was a hell of a concert. <laughs> they don't like it when you say that you caught them it, it, it really, uh, well, you know, bunnies. <laughs> yeah. They, they'd prefer not to, uh,
0: I've, I've still got the tabard. It's, 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 it's a great, it was a great show. <laughs> well, okay. So Gwydian, <laughs> we, one of the things that drew, that really uh, sparked in my, my reader brain, when I was looking at this is he's the sole survivor of his order. The Sages of Lyris, which we now know must have gone through. We knew when we met them in book six, they were having troubles. There was a, a schism, but we now know that must have gone really poorly. And uh, yes, absolutely. And, and that really compares them to you because you are the sole survivor of your order. And I was just curious, your life has been very traumatic. <laughs> I mean, right? you right. are a young, a young warrior who's lost all of your brethren, how much has Gwinnian's life been a struggle? He has
1: always taken a great deal of risk. Now, it's important to note that he is a member of what's called the Nameless Order. And that is a group of, uh, it's an underground alliance of intellectuals. And they all have the common purpose of overthrowing warmongering rulers, mostly in the Stormlands. Though Gwinnian, as he's grown in power, has started to stretch that out. But he's a staunch ally to anybody of like-mind and heroic character, which is why he basically throws everything into helping you. He recognizes you, even if he wouldn't necessarily say you're the child of the prophecy. He certainly believes that you are incredibly important to the future of the world. And, and he knows that because he sees a lot of himself in you. Uh, he has definitely suffered in his life. He's faced attempts of assassination. Uh, he's faced the agents of darkness. Uh, He has lost family, friends, all in the pursuit of his own goals, which he knows that that the Dark Lords and their agents hate him for.
2: As soon as the door creaks open, a bolt of fiery energy screams over your head and explodes with a tremendous ear-splitting crack against the stairs behind. It was launched from a tube of glowing crystal, supported on the shoulders of two reptilians kneeling in the corridor ahead their long jaws fall open in shocked surprise when they see you rise to your feet and run towards them your weapon drawn and ready to strike
0: so there's two more organizations that we have to cover before we go on to the next part of the book because they're both really integral to the story and and to the running of tahoe and One of them, uh, tahao. I keep doing that. That's okay, though. Yeah, it's it's tahao. I'm going to leave that in because it's just, at this point, I'm consistently bad at the pronunciations. That's amazing. (laughs) So we're going to leave it in. Anyway. And you know, it's it's a book,
1: right? So (laughs) whatever the sound is like in your head is just as legitimate as the truth.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) Why not? We'll go with that. We'll We'll do it. We'll do it. Uh, so it, it's easy to believe that Senator Chill is simply doing what he thinks will best benefit his people at the, when you first encounter him. But his actions are revealed later to be sinister enough that it does beg a question, and this one was also brought up by fan Marcus Tan, is he an agent of the Dark Lords? All right, so
1: objectively, no text has ever stated that, but he is so gloating. Uh, when when he right he treats you like you're beneath him, and and you're the guy who who basically flashlighted Zagarna to death.
0: Right, and that's why I wanted. That's why this is one of the organizations we have to talk about. Is this a Senate thing, or is this a, a Senator Chill thing? As far as as far as Senator
1: Chill is concerned. I mean, one, it is fairly clear by the time you get through the book that, that he if he's not acting alone, he's not acting on behalf of the entire Senate, that that he may have a group behind him, but it's not the whole nation. So but it, it does he acts like he has a pact with the Dark Lords. It's not stated um, and it's not noted, but it just makes sense. And And Joe writes him. Like, like he's trying to be the
0: face man for something bigger than himself. Well, he certainly gives you a chilly reception. Uh, uh. uh. <laughs> I'm also leaving that one in. <laughs> Chill out. Chill out. <laughs> 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 okay, so why? What would he gain from a dark lord uh, alliance? Because it seems like it seems like they just want to kill everybody. If I had to guess, I would say that
1: one, he was probably lied to, uh, you know, he, that's not uncommon for an intelligent Dark Lord you know, like Nog. He could easily have been lied to and said, you know, we'll spare your nation and for your help, we'll make sure that you're in charge. Common lie, uh, probably no intention of actually keeping it. But people like Senator Cheel would believe it because they're grasping for
0: power. Okay, okay, got it. That makes sense. well, then the other the other one we have to talk about, and this is fun because this is one that you don't have to meet, but no, this is no. the thieves Guild, yeah, you knew where I was going with this yep yeah and 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 I don't think I did meet them in most of my playthroughs because i I usually was able to pass the Senate by luck because it's luck. It's just you have you get to roll a die. Or well, or pick a random number, and if it's over a certain amount, you are you are helped. If it's not, you're not, and it's on that not path that you can find a thieves guild. But it leads to a lot of questions. One: Are there thieves guilds all over Magnumund? and do they work together? Okay, so the answer
1: is yes, and then no. They are if they're everywhere. There are guilds in. In Teyhau, in Vareta, you know, of course, Ansgaven is basically a thieves' guild with roofs. Um, th- that that whole that whole town is basically thieves' guilds. Uh, so then there are also assassins' guilds. Uh, you learn of them directly in like book sixteen. Uh, you you even see some of their machinations in the graphic novel The Skull of Agarash.
0: So yeah, these guilds are everywhere. And then how? If they don't all work together, you know, they must know of each other at least. How powerful is Magana in the world of thieves? Powerful because of the thing he has. And you know where
1: I'm going with that. Yeah, yeah, this gem. What the heck is that? It's a mind gem. Uh, very specifically, the mind gems were sp- powerful artifacts created by the Shianti uh, during the Golden Age. Uh, they're not evil items in it, at least they weren't when they were created. But they're transmitters of thought, right? And they're capable of increasing and amplifying magical energy. But when as some of the some of the Shianti started to drift towards the shadow, so too did their devices. It, it's it's a mental amplifier, right? So it channels thought. And as it does, if the thoughts are dark, if the thoughts are violent, then the gem itself becomes corrupted.
0: These these rings and and this gem, how did he get these things? By trade, by were they passed down to him? Did he dig them up? It's not specifically stated,
1: but I mean, if you can you can do the math, right? He's he's the the lord of a thieves guild, right? So they were probably right. obtained, and then he kept yes. them.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And well, and speaking of of obtaining, he wants you to get this ring back, and you kind of have to agree to it. It's kind of you know how you get how you move on with the book, but right. you never do meet Magana again. And and it is a plot thread that a lot of people have asked about. You know, people have said, did he die at the end of the book? Because there's this siege of of uh, Tahao. Did he? Uh, you know, did you just? Did you just kind of give him the, the, the cold shoulder and then hope uh, an assassin doesn't show up at your place again? What, what kind of happens to Magana? Okay, well, as a,
1: as a, as a minor spoiler, uh, during the Darklands War, which happens between books 10 and 12, to how b- gets taken and occupied by two different Dark Lords, uh, Zanshal and Ketelu. Uh that happens in 5063. Uh, Magana, at that point, is going to have to choose whether to help his people or flee. And interestingly, Magana chooses to stay. I mean, this, this, this is his domain. He cares about his son. He cares about the fellow thieves. And he does not want to lose his domain or his people to the Dark Lords. So he stays and fights. As for his specific fate, that hasn't been revealed
0: yet. Got it. Okay. And, but at this point, he doesn't have the psychic ring. Well, no, because a, a certain a certain Kylord probably keeps it.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> and, and he figures, okay, that's too much trouble. <laughs> right. Now, does he. So you said he actually did care about his son. This wasn't just. Because it's not clear in the book whether he wants the ring or his son, probably both. But he actually, you know. He actually did care for his son. Yes, certainly. That's not to say that he didn't care
1: for the ring, that he doesn't care for his things. He is absolutely still a thief, Lord. But yes, he absolutely cared for his son.
0: And his son, the fate of his son, this has long been debated in the fan community. Maybe we have an answer today. Does the son become the psychic ghoul which you fight in the, in the depths of the cauldron? Or was he killed by the ghoul who then took his ring? Uh, he is not the ghoul. As far as
1: any of the notes that we have, and this is an interesting bit that that most fans won't know, uh, there is a bonus adventure that's in preparation for writing uh, for um, Askvagelm, which is the Swedish company that publishes Insama Vargen. One of their plotted bonus adventures tells the story of Magana's son.
0: Uh, fascinating. Uh, well and yep. i and and i would love a bonus adventure now also to talk about magana during the uh during the Darklands War, or or maybe even a uh, a poor thief who's sent to steal the psychic ring, like <laughs> fifty years later, <laughs> has to go to the
1: Kai Monastery. <laughs> it's like, hey, I, I know I know you guys are at the height of your power now. You got the big crystal beacon and all, but uh, can I
0: can I have that ring? It just goes to show how many the Thieves Guild is. It's a it's a branching path. You don't have to see it, but it is so it, it creates so much. There's so much room in the imagination for for... I would say
1: that it is the more interesting way to go through to how.
0: Right. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: I would. I mean, not that not that both paths aren't interesting, but but if you're looking for lore and questions and just interesting, interesting bits of writing, I would absolutely go this route.
2: The streets and buildings of an ancient civilization lie before you, disappearing into the gloom of a titanic chasm of immeasurable size. Ziggurats and towers, their carved walls cracked and crumbling, lean at impossible angles, having sunk into the soil over centuries. This is Zarax, the legendary metropolis that was once home to a race fathered by Nyxator, the greatest of all dragons.
0: All right, so finally here we are. We find ourselves in the cauldron, and for those who don't know, the cauldron is not a a uh, a, bla- a a place for cooking delicious food. It is a oh no, there is nothing delicious about the food in the cauldron. <laughs> it, it's really a dungeon. It's, it's 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 an underneath, as I as I call it. It's kind of this this city uh, that was buried and then taught to how came on top of it, um, was built on top of it many centuries later, but the city has kind of remained intact, probably due to the, the direct influence of the gods, because it protects the Lorestone. It protects the Lorestone that you are seeking. Right, exactly. And, and that brings me to some Lorestone questions here. How did the Lorestone come to be and to how? Why did Sun Eagle leave it here? Okay, well,
1: uh, I can give you a little bit of the background. Uh, Anari was was once part of the great of the old kingdom of Great Cloesia, uh, which extended from Ragadorn all the way to uh, Navasari, which was ruled over by a faction of the Elder Magi. Uh, this group had a, a lore stone, and its guardian was Ureth. Uh, when the Great Plague destroyed this country, Ureth was the last to to pass, and sec- and secluded himself into his rest, which was a crypt deep in the Cha Range in northern Anari. And that's where he died. Okay, wow. Centuries later, the founder of Anari found Ureth's Rest and found the lore stone. They then stored it in their capital.
0: Got it. And then there's this story about the Kordayim War, where the Black Zaken start was coming to Tahau. Now, we know that his army was probably turned to stone, if we believe the legends. And it was during this time, and it was it was absolutely petrified. Okay, so yeah, so the armies turned the stone by the gods, uh, and then the lore stone is cast into the cauldron at this time because I, somebody must have thought they're going to get this uh, right. Absolutely. So that's all true then.
1: Uh, yeah, basically, when when Sun Eagle undertook his, his quest, his Magna Kai quest, uh, the lore stone was stolen by Vasagonian agents. Uh, Sun Eagle then helped the Inarians recover it, uh, but the Inarians were infuriated uh, when when the first Kai, when when Sun Eagle, absorbed its power. He then had to flee because they were
0: really oh. angry. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, because this gets to something that Jonathan Barnes, who's a, a fan as well, asked us, which was how long does it take for that knowledge to kind of re, resurface? It took
1: many years. But the Lorestone refilled itself. And as soon as it as soon as it did, uh, the Anarians ceased to be angry and basically no longer had any grudge with the
0: Kylords at all. Wow, though. That's a really interesting like like history. He absorbs its power, so it's this useless piece of glass for about a thousand years. He's like, th- thanks for bringing it back and then eating it. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. But no, because the, the crystal form of the Lorestone is just a receptacle, and it's a, and it's a channel directly
0: to Kai, it, it will never dry up entirely. Okay, now this is starting to make sense as to why Lone Wolf finds them, absorbs the knowledge, and then he brings them back to the monastery, because the world at large is no longer safe.
1: right. Uh, And in fact, Lone Wolf, through his researches, discovers that he can even accelerate how quickly they refill. That's why it took a long time for Sun Eagle. For Sun Eagle, it took a decade, maybe two, for it to
0: refill after he absorbed its power. But for Lone Wolf, it only took a few years. And and this kind of, I want to continue this history for a moment. And some of this was asked by uh, Francis Legault, another fan on the Facebook page, which is, so the Lorestone ends up in the cauldron. And then it's protected. We find uh, when we read this book by the Crocaryx or the Crocorox. I've heard that pronounced a couple of different ways. Uh, Crocaryx. Okay, I-, I was right the first time. Crocaryx. and they're these humanoid. They're like they're like bipedal alligators, <laughs> and kind of an offshoot of like lesser dragons. So, did they already live down here, or did were they sent? to Magnamund, to the cauldron, to protect the Lorestone after it was dumped down here.
1: They were recreated uh, from a lesser sentient race that inhabited uh, the realm of Synx in the Age of the Dragons. But they became extinct during that time after the War of the Worms. Uh, the Procarics that exist in Magnamund now, they were recreated and placed where they are
0: by, God- by Kai himself. Oh wow! You know what you said—they'd been extinct. It, this suddenly sheds a lot of light. There's this wonderful section. You get the you get the lore stone back, and the crocarics. There's this sense of real sadness, and, and you don't. It's wonderful the way uh, Joe writes it because he doesn't say, you know, they're sad because of this. He just kind of says they're sad, and and there's this sense of decline. But now I understand. They must know with their duty done. Their, their fate, their destiny, is to go back to extinction.
1: Yeah, they, they will diminish and go into the West. Wow. Okay. Well, that's- Yeah, sets- it's, not like, it's not like the Dakamede, though. It just means that they now know that their lifespan is no longer magically prolonged.
0: Right, okay. But okay. okay.
1: Because they because their fertility is incredibly low anyway- uh, each one of their eggs, each, each time they have an egg clutch, it's a big event. Now they know that they probably won't last long enough for another clutch. So, so their people will decline and they'll disappear.
0: And and for those who don't remember, when August said not like the Dacamid, what he means is that's the beast from Book Six, where you you get the lore stone and it and it goes oh damn and it explodes because you know uh, time has caught up to it as as the exactly. book says yeah. But but here it sounds like they're not like well see ya and then they blow into dust. It's just they know that their purpose is done
1: right now they they might still they might still continue on as a species for decades but given how infrequently they have eggs they know that their people are now done they don't they don't really
0: have a future any longer well i have a couple other questions before we leave uh the cauldron behind that one is a very small question it i was i was surprised when it said that you can forage from the wasteland uh of Zerix, which is the city down here that's been buried and you can you can forage and eat here with with grand hunt mastery. What the heck are you foraging?
1: Well, remember we said that, that none of the food in the cauldron is particularly tasty. Uh that's because while Kai can find a meal just about everywhere, it is hardly Michelin rated. Uh in this particular instance, you're talking about Rats, oh, insects, fine. maybe maybe some small pale fish, um, probably fungus.
0: Got it. Okay, so you're crouched like golem. On on the side of the the dead lake, pulling up pale fish and licking salt licks. Wonderful, right? What what are taters precious? Yeah, that that that's pretty much it. You know what? I guess next time I'm just gonna take the three endurance hit, and I'm just gonna am <laughs> let that be. <laughs> what you you don't want to make a bull weevil souffle? Uh, uh, well, I was afraid you were gonna say that you're eating the dead, uh, because there's certainly a lot of that down here.
1: There's these yeah, but it's all goo. Flesh and I would not recommend
0: it. Yeah, tell me about ghouls. I, I was th- this is an interesting one because most of the undead that you find in Magnamund, they are connected directly to a necromancer. You've got Vonatar who raises the Death Hulk fleet in book two. You know, later we get the we get the centers who have their own form of, of uh playing with the dead. And here though, there's no necromancer. Um, I don't think. So so where What's going on? Why are there ghouls?
1: Okay. Now, this is actually a very unique form of creature because the ghouls in this area come from an ancient curse that dates back to the War of the Worms. Uh, the false dragons of Nar waged war uh, on the realm of Nixator, and they destroyed it over time with a rain of fire. Uh, Zarex resisted this bombing because it was an underground city. So they couldn't destroy it with their fire. So the false dragons sent their spawn, these evil creatures that are basically ancestors to the zadragons, and to kill everyone in the city. After that, they cursed Zarax with the evil power of death, because they knew that they probably didn't get everything. I mean, they, they caused massive devastation, but they didn't want anything to survive. So the, the power of death that they cursed it with? causes anything mortal that dies in Zarex to return as a ghoul.
2: Wow.
1: Does that include the Crokerics? It is not stated. I would suggest that at least while they have the
0: power of Kai, they would be resistant to it. Because, you know, the ZA Dragon... Is like this this ish dragon you fight down here, right? The zodragons, yes, they are horrific, and, and that's what happened to them. I'm guessing
1: very, very similar. Uh, they are empowered by the by the evil power of death. That's what keeps them going, and so effectively, yes, they spread their own contagion, and that's the curse.
0: Man, I love this. It's just it's just another sign. We say this in a lot of the books, but you 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 begin to understand how every corner of Magnamund. Is its own story. Every corner of Magnemon could be the setting of not just one campaign, but many, many campaigns. Rather than kind of going across the world and finding dungeons everywhere, it's it's really you find these these deep, these places where they were touched by so much lore that its own that's how the history of this land sprung up. So every place in Magnamund is just very unique in its history. Uh, yes.
1: While at the same time, while each spot is unique, every one of them has also touched or been touched by parts either before or in some cases in the future of the world. So the lore is all is all very distinct and yet interconnected.
2: The enemy begin bombarding the wall with huge stone balls fired from catapults that they have wheeled to the edge of the Great Moat. The first of these missiles drop from the sky without warning to tear vast holes in the parapets and walkways. Immediately you take cover but are horrified to see one of these huge missiles hurtling directly towards you.
0: All right, fellow fans and kai lords, Kai ladies, we are uh gonna, we're coming close to the end, but this is gonna, we're gonna extend this episode. It's gonna be a little bit longer than our other ones because well, there's
1: just way too much to talk about.
0: Yeah, August said it. There's <laughs> there's we, we talked at the beginning, like this is where the lore really starts to roll in. And this book has the, the heavy weight of being the first. To start to introduce a lot of this stuff, so we're gonna there we would we would go right to in the margins, but there is a topic we have to cover. We'd be remiss if we didn't, and that is be, that is the topic of Zakin Kima, who is the big bad, the boss fight, so to speak, of this book. And the reason I think that we we really got to talk about him is because there are a number of infamous fights throughout the Lone Wolf series. We're coming up on some, and this is the first really. Big one. Um, it's this. It's, th- this is the book where a lot of people who are trying to Iron Man their way through the series die. Right, right, and <laughs> and, and I've read some of the math on it. You know, the, the statistics have changed over the years in different publications, and I I think that the definitive edition is going to try to adjust it even further when we get there. But the math shows it's a, it's like a very low chance of winning this fight. Uh, oh, yeah. Especially in its original form. And this has led a lot of people to ask the question, and I, I think it's fair to ask it here. You know, did Joe think these combats through mathematically or, or how did he choose these combat ratios for these infamous fights? Like, like what was what was missed or was it his intention for it to be this hard?
1: Oh, he absolutely did. Uh, And he did think about the math. Uh, I think if if there's anything that could be said that he quote unquote overlooked, it's that I don't think he intended anyone to try to do something like Iron Man their way through the series, where if they if they die, they start all over again. Or I, I think he intended people who who fail at this fight to, you know, go go back several sections or maybe just restart this book um he didn't really expect people to to want to try uh to do to do the thing where you just march your way through and so he did he did look at the math but he wanted this fight to be incredibly difficult he wanted this fight to be the kind of thing where you had to prep you had to have uh, this is probably the first book where he he decided he wanted to fight where you needed a better than average combat skill
0: which is interesting because you definitely can start without that you know you can and, and there's not a lot of way around this earlier books like like uh, dark lord hakon um i'm tr- i'm thinking of pretty much all the first five books have fights that you can in some way, if you don't have the skill, you can kind of find a, a path in the book. Like like a good example is the Akron Neonor in book two, uh three, book three, Calte. You find Akron Neonor, you can find this effigy that can get you out of the fight if you don't have the skill to fight it. Now it's hard to do that, you have to find the exact right path through the book. But that meant that any player truly could beat it. But there's there's The only way out of this fight, if I recall, is if you've actually been in book four and you have the dagger of Vashna.
1: Right. Well, okay. now it is important to understand the the environment in which he was writing this book. There were a number of I don't want to say complaints, but there was some heavy commentary about how because he'd put those things in the books, there were a lot of people. You know how the squeaky wheel always gets the grease. (laughs) there were a lot of people complaining that they didn't feel challenged because he was putting cheats in the books.
0: Damn you, those complainers.
1: (laughs) Those complainers. So, you know, he took that to heart. That said, when he realized that, you know, maybe it balanced a little too far the other direction, uh, he even changed the stats himself in the collector's edition.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. And, And I mean, it is interesting, you know, you note that he did he he didn't mind people starting the book over. And that's fine because in this book, there's a lot of, of interesting things to see and a lot of paths to choose. So in some ways, dying here is an opportunity. You go, I'm going to go try some other stuff. So that's pretty cool.
1: And some, of the, and some of those other paths are extremely rewarding. Like it's multiple chances to get the gray ring. Which is helpful in, is it not helpful in this fight? It's not helpful in this fight, but it's helpful later. Okay, got it. Now, there you know, actually, i'm I take that back. I take that back. The psychic ring is actually
0: helpful in this fight, great. OK. See, and there we go. There's a little bit of that one true pathing that I guess a does, little bit. does yeah. help out, and that's really what i what I think we people wanted us to cover here. I mean, we could talk about Zach and Kima as a character and the narrative. But I, the thing that always comes up is this this challenge. and And believe us, we're going to come back to this. um, Especially oh, yeah. in book eleven, <laughs> so put put a bookmark in that for for uh, a little thing called the Chaos Master. But we'll we'll be back to talk yeah. about the challenge. Spe- <laughs> speaking of
1: Iron Man ending runs, yeah.
0: Well, and, and there will be different questions there because that book is not as um, non-linear as this one.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, that that is absolutely true. I I, I will note actually that the Chaos Master is the first fight that I utterly failed
0: (laughs) you're you're not alone to that we'll get to that (laughs) well because i said we were kind of having to wrap up but i do i did hear that august brought some interesting from the margins for us today and i would love to hear them so take it away august
1: so this book introduces a drink called boza and boza i mean in the in the book it's it's described as pale yellow um and well, I don't know about the sour milk bouquet, I do know that the, uh, that the wines that, that Joe was inspired by to create Boza are very likely the, the, the Pinot Gris, uh, and, the and the Chenin, basically wonderful French wines that you should absolutely, uh, if you if you're in any way a white wine drinker or a wine drinker at all i highly recommend them they are absolutely delicious
0: and i know that joe loved them too so he so even though it has this strange bouquet he meant for boza to be delicious i i, I
1: suspect that he put the bouquet in there just so that it wouldn't be a, a different name for a french wine <laughs> i love it but he was certainly inspired by them. Now, we also know there were a number of, of fantastic pieces of art here, and it should be noted that this is the first book that has
0: Brian Williams artwork. And we promise we will do an episode talking about the artists of, of Lone Wolf. Uh, that, oh, yeah. That will we're we're going to
1: have a dedicated episode to the artists. Okay. But he Brian Williams was given a great deal of freedom. It, it, it's It's an absolutely fair question to ask. Uh, Colin O'Hare asked that, and it is it is perfectly reasonable, because Brian Williams, his style was very different th- than people like Gary Chalk, uh, other artists who've touched the covers and the interiors. Uh, and yes, Brian Williams was given freedom to do that.
0: Yeah, Colin O'Hare asked a great question about whether Brian had freedom to to choose how to draw things. So thanks for that, Colin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Excellent question. And speaking of good questions, uh we've got uh John Brinst who asks um there's an emblem on on one, at least the original cover that is a shield with an eagle and it's gripping a golden heart. Yeah, this was a cool thing. What what was it? Oh, this? it's a, it's it's a fantastic crest and I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> but it is it is not uh, a specific kingdom or a power uh, because the emblem differs from all the flags that Joe created for Inari uh, or Lourdes, uh, Kakush, Fairland, all those countries in the area. There is no nation that this emblem comes from. So I think it is fair to say that you can either consider it non-canon or it is just a shield that matches a specific order. For the one that was bearing it.
0: Or maybe even a house, right?
1: I mean, you. Well, that, when I say order, yeah, I mean uh, a, a knightly order or a royal house or even a mercenary company. I mean, you know, lots of people loot shields off the battlefield.
0: Yeah, it's important to note. I mean, I did a study on uh, griffins a while back for an earlier podcast called The Bestiary. And in there, we discovered that, you know, heraldry, houses were always. Taking aspects of other heraldry and working them into their own at, in order to sort of ally themselves with powers. So it, it would be very uh, probable that that, you know, a, a royal household or a or a lesser baron or even a lesser prince might take some of a nari, uh, an anari flag and some of maybe even a Summerland flag or or powers that they they thought were strong at the time and then thrown their own thing like well this one's gonna have the eagle ripping out a heart and uh that's gonna make me seem awesome to all my friends right or the <laughs>
1: griffin is flying over fire
0: right right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like people, anything with fire is times 10 cool it's like people trying to come up with good names on reddit they're hoping they'll go down in infamy as you know right the the czar 67 <laughs> or darth potato yeah yeah exactly yeah
1: I, I yeah that and that's that really has always been a huge part of heraldry so i think the official if you if you want an official answer for this is that no uh, that shield does not match anything in canon
0: Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today for this long, extended episode. Next month, we are going to be back with book 10 in the series. And uh, this is where things may be one of the probably the least linear in terms of the various paths you can choose and actually encounter very different stories. Uh, Also brings back some, a lot of returning plot lines for both friends and foes. And that is one of the most acclaimed of the series. And that is the dungeons of Torgar.
1: Yes. A book that, that Joe himself called a delightful Hydra.
0: Ooh, I could see that.
1: Because basically it's five to six different stories, like the heads of a Hydra and whichever gullet you want to go down determines your,
0: your adventure. So next time, we're going to look forward to facing the Hydra. And until then,
1: for For Summerland
0: and the the Kai. Thank you for listening to another episode of Journeys Through Magnum. We hope you've enjoyed this revisiting of one of Fantasy's longest running series. The music you're listening to now is Forged in the Sun a new musical track from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star, whose mission is to create music inspired by the Lone Wolf series. Visit brotherhood.rocks to get more awesome music from them. The opening music for the Lone Wolf podcast is composed by Ed Hicks, and incidental music comes from Alexander Nakarada. Visit his Patreon and become a patron to receive royalty-free music for your own podcast and other audio projects. You don't mean nothing to me You're nothing
1: at all